What a blessing it is today to be able to assemble. It's already been mentioned a few times in prayers and in conversations how blessed we are. So good to see everyone here today, our membership, our visitors alike, and it's our conviction or trust that as we are here doing that which God has commanded, that not only shall He be magnified, but we will be encouraged. For the next few moments, may I ask you to give thought to a lesson I've entitled, One Second with the Dead. The opening slide, the opening introduction, if you please, I would ask that we develop in the following way. I'm sure we've each experienced it. There are things in life that when they happen, we rather quickly conclude, I hope I never have to experience that again. Maybe it's a particular injury. Maybe it's a certain surgery. Maybe it's an event at the place where you work, but this particular thing happens and it's so miserable, it is so distasteful, and it is so uncomfortable that it is your strong desire that you never have to experience that again. But may I say that on the other side of that coin, there may well be instances in which some particular thing has occurred and it was so pleasant, it brought you such joy that you would very much hope that you might experience something like that again. We've each had matters in our life that has fallen into one or the other of those categories. And they likely have etched in our thinking sufficiently strong memories that it is easily able to be said exactly what you were doing and how you felt. I'd like to suggest that today that idea will be an important part of our lesson this morning. You may notice about the middle of that slide. That's a strong warning against this kind of mentality. I know each of us are so strongly tempted to just presume through life under the realization that everything will be okay. We all have a tendency to do that. Some particular thing isn't good, we do it with health, don't we? Something isn't quite right, and yet we just keep going by week after week and month after month, and we finally go to the doctor, and he says, if you'd have come about four months ago, I sure would have had a lot easier time healing you. Now it's going to be painful, and now it's going to be hard. Isn't it true the Word of God has some warnings along that line for us? Today, why don't we study about one second with the dead? To do that, why don't we begin by talking about death? Death is a subject around which there's a fair amount of confusion. Our world has a lot of misgivings about it. The Bible presentation of it is very simple. You and I know that we were made in the image and likeness of God, every one of us. And it isn't just Americans. Every human being everywhere was made with a remarkable consideration because that person was made in the image of God. The Bible bears that out in language like this. Every one of us are immortal spirits. May I invite you to consider what that word immortal means. I know that it's easy to use it. It's more difficult to fathom it. You see, you and I live in a world in which we're accustomed to death. We're in December now, plants die, and yet come springtime, they'll blossom forth and bud, and life is to be seen again. We're accustomed to, you see, that which dies and then comes back to life in the plant kingdom at least. Now, in the animal and human kingdom, it seems different. We're accustomed to death, and that's the end of it, or so it appears. 
The Bible teaches in Zechariah 12, verse 1, for example, that when you God makes human beings, He invests them, and they are immortal spirits. And that word immortal means never to die. There will never come a time, there will never be a moment when that human being will cease to exist. That person will always be. And so you and I currently live in the flesh, and indeed from day to day we appreciate what it's like to live in this flesh. But even when the time comes that I'm laying in a casket, or perhaps you are, that is not the end. We simply are continuing to exist elsewhere, not here anymore. Look at some of these verses. We know that life in this flesh is something that's going to reach its end. Didn't David say it so poetically in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 2? I go, he said, the way of all the earth. Every one of us are going to reach this particular reality if the Lord delays His coming. The nature of that death is echoed in Hebrews 9, 27. In these words, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. There's an absolute appointment, you see. There may be times when you and I fail to keep certain appointments on earth. Sometimes it's not even our choice. We'd like to be there, but something happens. Car trouble, an accident. May I say there is an appointment known as death every one of us will keep. We won't be late and we won't be able to avoid it. It is an absolute and certain matter. But with that, note the following. Doesn't the Bible then help you and I appreciate this? Death is merely a transition. It is a change, if you please, from life in this flesh to life, still life, but life elsewhere. James 2.26 says it like this, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And although James's point was to help us understand about faith and works, he taught us about life and death at the same time. You and I are said to be alive when our spirit inhabits the body. When that spirit departs the body, the body is left behind as dead. That spirit's still alive elsewhere. As you and I keep that thought in mind, notice where it leads us next. Death is then not merely some transition to a nothingness. It's a transition to an existence elsewhere. There is awareness and there is consciousness and there is many things that should be noted about life beyond this one. Why don't we study about some of them this morning and as we close that slide, could we note this? Will there be memory? After you and I are gone, will we be able to remember anything? Will we have a perception? Will we have an understanding about where we are and what's happening? Will there be a degree of cognizance, in other words? We're going to answer those questions, and I hope they'll be a very profound and very useful thing reminding us of some things. Let's close that slide like this. May I ask a question? Suppose you or I could spend one second, one second, with the dead. I'd like to suggest it would change everything about the way we live, in some cases, it would change everything about the mission of our life and the purpose that God has given us. What if you or I could spend one second with the dead? Let's divide the lesson into two parts from this point forward. 
What if you could spend one second with a person who died in a saved condition? One person. And you could spend one second experiencing what that person is now experiencing. Let's develop the lesson like this. Jesus taught a parable in Luke 16. And it is in the context of that that we're going to read the following. I'll begin reading in verse 19 of that chapter. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that as the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son... Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses of the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. One second with the dead. Would you consider this with me? Jesus taught a dramatic truth. In fact, a set of them in this discourse we've just noted. Isn't it true that He spoke about a gentleman that on earth was a beggar? Oh, how his condition was not something to be admired. He was full of sores, the text says. So not only did he not have much money or anything, his health wasn't good. Can you imagine how it must have looked for his body to be covered in the way that the Lord here describes. But not only that, he was hungry. He was waiting at a gate and just hoping for some crumbs. I believe all of us will be quick to say that I'm trying to live my life in such a way that I won't have in this flesh what that gentleman's experiencing. This beggar, health bad, dependent upon the generosity of others just to survive... Let's add to that this. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, however the time came that the beggar died. His life in the flesh no more. And this interesting statement, you and I noticed it a moment ago, was found. It says in verse number 22, The beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. This place, Abraham's bosom, notice the description. Jesus Himself said, verse number 25, this is a place of comfort. That word comfort, as you can see in the Greek, it means to relieve distress. Would we all agree that in life that man named Lazarus had some distresses? Where am I going to find my food to eat? 
Where am I going to take care of the other needs and necessities of life? And now he found relief from those things that were difficult, those distresses. And you'll notice it also carries the idea of to cheer. May I say, Lazarus was now happy. He was joyful. He was comforted. He was in this location, no longer on earth, but in the confines of the presentation, we notice a cheerful place, a joyful existence. May I say as we close that slide, at this point, Lazarus, I wrote it like this. He no longer was made sad by what he had experienced in this life. That was a matter of distant history. It was a matter that no longer agitated or troubled him. One second with the dead. May I suggest if you and I could experience for one second what Lazarus in this parable is now experiencing, it would motivate us in such dramatic appreciation. This is what the Lord Jesus has made possible. We can leave behind the troubles of earth. All of the hardship, the ungodliness, and the difficulties that plague our way now and go to a place where there is none of that. Go to a place where there's sublime joy, remarkable cheerfulness, sweet absence of every kind of sin. One second with the dead. Maybe a picture would be something useful. You and I know that the Revelation as well as other parts of the Bible give us some kind of ways to try and picture this, and yet pictures don't do it justice. But you'll notice here a picture patterned after the Revelation to be sure of this grand element in triumph and victory where all you see is pristine purity as if it's white. We know later there's descriptions about this sweetness the characteristics in the heavenly realms of this golden street of gold, and understanding attached to that place wherein the tree of life is there. And ultimately one can have access to that all the time, and one, of course, will never die. There are no hospitals in heaven. There are no sudden emergency clinics. There won't be any need for anything like that. There's no prisons and no jails because all those people won't be there. There isn't anything like that that would present a need for a policeman. No difficulties attached to accidents along the way. You see, nothing like that is going to plague or cloud the location of that sweet place one second with the dead. If you and I could experience one second with, again, what Lazarus would be experiencing May I say we can perhaps summarize some of those thoughts on this slide. Notice the top. Isn't it a sweet description of the Word of God that there are those who are listed in the Old Testament especially who the text says they were gathered with their people. We have often noted in verses like Genesis 25:8, there in respect to Abraham. Abraham died, we understand that, but the text says he was gathered with his people. We know very well that doesn't mean that he was buried with his ancestors because Abraham wasn't buried where they were. They had died in Ur of the Chaldees and again, far, far distance away. What that means is the faithful who were saved and those that were died ahead of him 
he was going to be able to be reunited with them. Doesn't it charge your mind and mind with great excitement to give thought to the fact of meeting some golden day the faithful who've passed on before us? They are described in Hebrews 12 verse 1, a cloud of witnesses, those people like Noah and Abraham and Moses and Sarah and Joshua and the other faithful recorded in that chapter. I might say even in the near term, maybe you have grandparents or great-grandparents or parents or others you've known and loved so much. They faithful, faithfully serve the Lord and they've passed on too. You might notice as we add to that, didn't Paul speak about these things? I think the lady studied about this rather notably last week as you recorded Paul's statements in Philippians chapter 1. For me to live as Christ... And to die is gain. He understood there was something better for the faithful that existed beyond the realms of this flesh, and Paul was excited to experience it. He was looking forward to that reality. He knew for the present time it was needful for that Philippian church and others that he remain and serve on this earth. But how he longed for the time when he, like the faithful dead who'd gone on, could experience the joy and the comfort and the cheerfulness that came with existing in that realm beyond this one. When you and I add to that the following, one second with them would motivate us and give us an incentive to live faithfully and to not be deterred by the distractions and the the particulars of the devil. With all of that said, that kind of motivation is but one side of a strong biblical coin one side of a consideration that will motivate us just as much. You see, what Jesus did for us at the cross was make it possible to inhabit that place and to go there and to know the joy that's there. Could I invite you again to notice verse number 25? This is what was said concerning Lazarus. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil. But now, He is comforted. The roles were completely reversed after death. In life, the rich man had everything. Lazarus had nearly nothing. But after the reality of death, we now notice Lazarus had it all. It was he who was comforted and the rich man was in torment. Let's now devote some attention to that side of this consideration. Specifically, what if you could experience one second with the rich man now. Just one. That's all it would take. If you and I could experience that, never again would you want to commit a sin. Never again would you want to willfully choose to live in such a way because knowing what's coming, you would want to change instantly. Let's develop it like this. Jesus taught in this same parable, you see, about on earth, this rich man, he had all that this world had to offer. Notice some of these particulars. First, it is said he was rich. Whether it be money, whether it be possessions, he had it. But not only that. It says he was clothed, verses 19 and following, in purple. Purple was what was worn by, again, those that were certainly rather well-to-do, maybe even an official, a kingly person perhaps. 
He was clothed in purple. And to that we might add this. The text says purple and fine linen. Not only that purple, but in addition to that, clothed in finery. Perhaps two final things to be noted. It says he fared sumptuously. He ate well. One of the greatest blessings of this life today as well as life then was the capability of having sufficient food. This man had not just sufficient amount but an abundance of it. Fine food and don't we all enjoy that? You'll notice it says enough few other adjectives about it. Namely, he was glad. Now I've used that to highlight this. If you look up the word sumptuously... That not only relates to what he ate, but to the way he ate it. Here's the definition. The rich man was merry. He was glad. He was able from day to day to enjoy the abundance of blessings, and it led to rejoicing attribute in his life. And not only that, a splendidness to it. That's what it was like in this life for him. But look further. The duties and the obligations that were to be appreciated were of very little concern to him. Everything was taken care of. Maybe he had an abundance of servants. Maybe he had other things that provided it. To say the very least, the description of that rich man in this life is a very desirable one for many people. Maybe you and I could place ourselves in desire for liking those things. But note this, he died the same way Lazarus did. He also reached the end of his existence in this life. Verse number 23 says, I'll begin reading in verse 22. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. The rich man died. But Jesus didn't end the discussion there. What did he experience after death? What was it like to be where he then was? May we all listen with great care. May we pay attention to this. God's trying to get our attention here. Let's begin our discussion like this. He did not just die like Rover. It's not just that his existence in this flesh ended and he went to some place where he's just kind of in limbo waiting for the day of resurrection. That's not what happened. The instant he left this life, he found himself in torment. He may have thought it was something on this life. Many might think it's bad here. May I suggest that's nothing compared to what's coming. If you die lost, look at what's about to happen. He lifted up his eyes in torment. He was in a place, you see, of misery, where it wasn't just ordinary misery, something like you could wait, I'll wait this out and it'll get better. It's never going to get better. Let's develop it like this. The actual Greek word that is utilized by the master here is this word, basinos. Let me describe to you something of what that word conveys. The word literally has to do with the black stone, as you can see on that slide. And what the ancient individuals would do is, this particular stone, they would utilize it to test 
the integrity of a particular substance. So if there was a gem or a mineral that was of interest, perhaps you wonder what it is, you could rub it with this black stone, apply pressure and force to it, and it would reveal the underlying character. Is the gem real or is it just a fake? That word came over time to be used to represent a rack or an instrument of torture. You and I have noticed in the ancient stories about how that people who in the Middle Ages were to be punished, they'd tie them to a rack and stretch the body and put them under agonizing misery. That's the word Jesus used here. A word that highlights an extraordinary degree of pressure and misery and anguish and force. And that's what the rich man's experiencing. After death, it's not just a matter of waiting until the day of judgment. If you die lost, you're in misery until that day of judgment. And then it only gets worse still. Couldn't we perhaps highlight this? Quite often as you think about the severe pains that were attached to this, could I invite you to note the language Jesus Himself used, specifically in verse 28. It was there that it says, For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Did you notice who said that? That was that rich man talking then. So Jesus said it's a place of torment. The rich man agreed. This place where I now am is a place of torment. That's His word. You and I have then been told enough, this place is worse than awful. It's painful. It's not only uncomfortable. It is excruciating. There's more that should be said. As you and I close that slide, could we note this? One of the greatest and most powerful considerations about all of this takes us back to some matters I raised earlier. Do you know anything after you die? I know there are many through the ages have just asserted that when you die, you're just there. Oh, you may be existent somewhere, but it's a nothingness. That isn't so. Notice what this rich man knew. Now remember, he was rich in this life, and after his death... Could I ask you to point out this? The language of verse number 24 is very telling. He cried. Can you feel the power in his cry? He had had it all in life in this flesh, and now after death he cries and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He was now in need and so desirous of mercy. He goes on to say, Send Lazarus. Can you hear the plea in his heart? Send Lazarus. Why? That he may dip the finger in water and cool my tongue. He's in a flame, you see, and he knew it. It's not that Abraham had to tell him he was. He knew it. Do you want to be in that flame? Be honest now, do you? Surely none of us would say you'd want to be. And yet, the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation paints to us a picture. Death is a transition to an existence beyond this one. Is this what you want? The choice is left to you and me now. 
as we develop this slide. This isn't the only time, of course, in the Word of God that descriptions along this line are found. In Mark 9, verses 43 and following, Jesus, three times in the span of half a dozen verses, He said, The fire is not quenched. The worm never dies. Now we understand there aren't literally worms there, but what He was commenting and what He was describing was that well-known place just outside Jerusalem. It was, of course, that Valley of Hinnom. You and I have often reflected on what, what that place was like, but maybe it's well to note it again. You know, just like every city, every city's got to have some place to take its garbage. The people that live therein, you know, they, they generate trash, and they generate things that need to be disposed of. Jerusalem's garbage dump was the Valley of Hinnom, and so folks would take their trash out of the city. And quite often that trash would include corpses and you know, various bodies. You know, if an animal died, you'd take that animal's corpse down there and just toss it into the Valley of Hinnom. Fires burned 24 hours a day to consume the garbage in that valley. And you can imagine the stench as those corpses were burning in the flesh and the sinews. And if the wind blew from the south, then that would blow it right into Jerusalem. Just an awful smell. Not only that, all the blood that was, of course, accumulated at the temple. Now, a lot of that had to be disposed somewhere. And we all know how blood can often present an odor when it's allowed to be open to, to the air. Jesus said, in comparison, I'm telling you that the closest thing I can describe to you concerning hell is that valley of Hinnom. There's fire and hell, and it's going to never be quenched. It burns all the time. Notice here that the rich man wasn't just viewing that fire from a distance. He was in it. He was experiencing it. And he pleaded, Please send a cooled finger to cool my tongue. But it wasn't to be. Let's go even further. There was a great gulf there, and Jesus, as He explained the parable, said, Look, there's a great gulf between you and us, and even if we wanted to come, we can't. And not only that, y'all can't come here either. It's a big deal to die lost. It's not like dying saved. I realize on this earth we see flesh and bones and people who are saved and those that are lost. All of us have those things, but there's something fundamentally different. One obeyed Jesus Christ, and one didn't. Oh, one might have been saved at one time, but chose to live in a rebellion against God. Any of us, then, who choose to pass from this life like that are casting our vote that we want to be where the rich man now is. Let's go even further. May I suggest if you or I, if any person on this earth could experience one second of where the rich man now is, it would change everything. It would change everything in some ways like you'll notice at the bottom. We wouldn't be able to fill this. We wouldn't have a building big enough to hold all the people to be here. That's just the way it is. We wouldn't be able to keep people away from the door. They'd beat down the door to get to the services. Not only this morning, but tonight and Wednesday night too. There'd be no holding anybody back. 
Even minor illness couldn't keep us away. It would mean too much to be here. Our conviction tomorrow and Tuesday, every day of the week would never wane if for one second we could experience what the rich man now is experiencing. It would motivate us like nothing else because we wouldn't want to go where he now is. We would do anything within our power to keep from going wherever he now is. We would live faithfully in committed and devoted fashion. We'd love our Lord. The Bible would mean everything to us. No wonder in light of those things. Notice verse 28 and 29 of this same passage yet again. This rich man suddenly became rather evangelistic. Please tell my five brothers, because I don't want them to come here. He had some brothers, you see. And here was a circumstance in which he knew that they weren't right, and he knew where they were going to end up if they didn't change. And he thus pleaded, please send somebody. May I say that you and I have the great Word of God now. Evangelism, the setting before others of the truth of the gospel. No wonder we can close that slide like this. Our love for Christ would be paramount. If for one second we could experience Jesus dying on the cross keeps me from coming here. His death on the cross means I don't have to come here. And praise be unto God, that precious plan of salvation that I can obey and I can be right with God. One second with the dead. It certainly is something to think about, isn't it? Some pictures might help cement some of those thoughts in your heart and mind. Can you imagine being in that? Being in it? It's enough to watch it. And sometimes we admire flames and the kind of spectacular dancing character they present, but to be in it, that's a whole different story. And not only that, to imagine the anguish, the cries, the excruciating plea, and knowing it'll never get any better. Never will it be reduced. Never will it be diminished. And as we've already said, once the day of judgment comes, it only worsens. Because then you're literally where the devil is. You get to enjoy his company for all eternity, if you can call that enjoyment. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, there's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, when God prepares a place, that's pretty serious. The flames that one can imagine and to actually be in them, to understand what's involved in them, and to appreciate the choice that's yours and mine. There's only two. It's heaven or it's hell. Would you and I prefer to be eternally where the rich man now is or to be eternally where Lazarus now is? Needless to say, the question is a fundamental one. What's the answer you and I wish to give? One second with the dead. If you aren't saved at this moment, why won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?